Welcome to Monday Morning Murder in the News with Alyssa Carroll. Good morning, heathens, and happy Murder in the News Monday that I'm going to try to release every single Monday morning because the rest of the news is just hot, scary garbage, and you know you'd rather be hearing me and my bullshit anyway. So, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So I've scoured the internet for the headlines, as well as a couple of listeners. Thank you, Jessica, so that you don't have to. Happy commuting, and here we go. So our first article comes from KTLA 5 LA's very own, and the title reads, Two Environmental Scientists Team Up to Find Kristen Smart's Remains. So a pair of scientists, along with a former analyst at the Federal Bureau of Investigation, have joined forces to find the missing remains of Kristen Smart 27 years after her disappearance and murder. While Smart's body has actually never been located, the case has gained renewed interest from the true crime podcast, Your Own Backyard. Now, in a mission dubbed Project Homecoming, two scientists believe the soil in a backyard may be the key to finding the missing Cal Poly San Luis Obispo students' remains. Dr. Steve Hoyt is a Cal Poly graduate and an environmental scientist whose business tests soil samples. Timothy Nelligen, I think it's pronounced Nelligen, an environmental engineer who also attended Cal Poly, had an actual run-in with the 19-year-old Smart. Quote, She came knocking at our door a week before she went missing to use the telephone to call somebody. We followed the case ever since and wanted to help the family. End quote. So Paul Flores, the last person to see Smart alive, is serving 25 years to life for killing her. Along with the former FBI analyst who is an expert in cadavers, the men went to Flores's mom's house. Along the backyard fence, they tested soil vapors for compounds consistent with a decomposing body. Quote, we found many of these compounds present at the site, Hoyt said. In 2015, the famously accurate cadaver dog, Buster, detected human decomposition in the same location. Quote, we know the technique works with the cadaver dog and the instrumentation can measure the same compounds. It's a matter of nobody really took the extra step to put the scientific information in place. End quote. And then again, quote, from our analysis, there really isn't another possibility. So where we stand, there either is or was a human body in that area. So the same Environmental Protection Agency approved testing method is used to find contaminants in soil. Quote, we're all experts in our field with decades of experience, and we really went firmly on the science and the computer models to show there is a cadaver nearby, Nelligen said. The hope is that these techniques can eventually lead to closure for the smart family. 
while this is something of a passion project for Cal Poly grads, it's completely self-funded. The next step is working with law enforcement to take this a step further, possibly with another search warrant, and then developing the technology to help other families looking for missing loved ones. Well, I certainly hope that that family can find some closure. And then our next article comes from cbsnews.com. The title reads, America's Most Wanted Suspect in Woman's 1984 Killing Returned to Florida After Living for Years as Waterboard President in California. A man arrested earlier this month in California has been returned to Florida to face charges in the 1984 killing of a woman, authorities said. Officials say Donald Santini, 65, had been serving as the president of a local water board in the San Diego suburb when he was finally apprehended. Santini was booked into a Florida jail Wednesday morning on a charge of first-degree murder, according to a Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office statement. Florida detectives had traveled to San Diego, California, following Santini's June 7th arrest, and he was later extradited to Tampa, Florida. Quote, the arrest of Donald Santini brings closure to a long-standing cold case and provides justice for the victim and her family after nearly four decades of waiting, Hillsborough County Sheriff Chad Cronister said in a statement. Quote, let's not forget the tireless work that has gone into this case over the years, the resources and expertise to pursue justice for Cynthia Wood. End quote. Santini had been on the run since June 1984 when Florida authorities obtained an arrest warrant linking him to the strangling death of Wood, a 33-year-old woman. Well, caught now is better than never, right? And then our next article comes from KSDK.com, Five on Your Side, and the title reads, New Lead in 40-Year-Old Cold Case of St. Louis's Little Jane Doe. A social media post has homicide detectives searching for more clues about the identity of a little girl found beheaded in 1983. Coming out of St. Louis. A social media post from someone with the username Finding Janetta has St. Louis homicide detectives abuzz as they hope it could help them solve the gruesome murder of a child that's haunted the department for 40 years. The post appeared on Reddit about a month ago. The author, who did not publish their name, asked for help in finding their older sister, who was nine years old on Valentine's Day in 1983, the last time the author says anyone remembers seeing her alive in Terre Haute, Indiana. The missing girl was living with her father then, who is not the author's father, and he had ties to St. Louis. Fourteen days later, on February 28, 1983, the decapitated remains of a little girl forensic experts believe was between the ages of 8 and 12 years old were found in the basement of an abandoned building. But whoever, quote, finding Janetta is has gone dark. Several people commented on the post, suggesting it could be connected to the unsolved St. Louis case known as Little Jane Doe. 
Five on Your Side, which is the news source, posted a comment asking the author for a comment, but they have not heard back. And neither have the police. Now, the police department is asking the public for help as they continue to track down this lead. Quote, the level of detail that is contained within this post, there seems to be a fair amount of information that could potentially fit with the information that investigators already know, said St. Louis Police Sergeant Charles Wall, who spoke on behalf of the Homicide Division. Quote, we have to hold out hope that there's somebody that knows something. End quote. The author states they had different fathers, and their sister's father took the older sister from her maternal grandmother's house while their mother was in prison. Relatives of the missing little girl told the author the last time anyone saw her was when another sister babysat her on Valentine's Day in 1983 while her father and his new wife went out on a date. Fourteen days later, the decapitated remains of a little girl were discovered in the basement of a vacant apartment building in the 5600 block of Clemens Avenue in St. Louis. Forensic pathologists estimated she was between the ages of 8 and 12 years old. The author believes their missing sister was born May 15, 1973, which would have made her nine years old when the unidentified body was found. So here are some of the details that stand out to the police, okay? Maybe one of you listening can help. The author and their older sister went to live with their maternal grandmother after their mother went to jail in 1981. The author lived with her missing older sister for at least two years when the missing girl's father picked her up from her grandmother's house just after the new year in 1983. When their mother got out of prison in 1986, the missing girl's father would not let her speak or see, speak to or see the daughter they shared. St. Louis police exhumed little Jane Doe's remains in June of 2013 for further forensic testing. Minerals in her bones indicated she likely came from six states in the middle of the country, including Missouri, Illinois, and Indiana. A possible name, Janetta Brooks. So at 84, retired St. Louis homicide detective Joe Burgoon, Burgoon is one of the last remaining original detectives who worked the case from the beginning. He said St. Louis detectives always speculated the victim couldn't have been living in St. Louis at the time of her murder because they combed through every school roster and accounted for every child who was enrolled at the time. He remembers going inside the vacant apartment building and seeing little Jane Doe's remains. She was laying on her stomach with her hands bound behind her back with a red and white nylon rope. She was, oh, she was naked from the waist down, wearing nothing but a yellow V-neck long sleeve sweater with the label cut out. It was stained with blood, but detectives don't believe that basement is where she was killed because her body didn't have any blood left in it. Neither did her stomach. She had no signs of abuse, and the sweater was in otherwise very good condition, with creases still in it from where it had once been neatly folded. Her nails were painted red, but sloppy and chipped, like any child who painted their own nails would have. Wall said detectives like Burgoon worked doggedly to solve this case. Quote, it's just unimaginable, and it's proven to be impossible to solve. 
Police and crime lab experts have tried to test little Jane Doe's DNA against multiple databases that have led to breaks in other seemingly unsolvable cases across the country. Only nothing has ever clicked in this case. Now, police are hoping a social media post might change that. So any information is asked, if you have any information, then you are asked to call the St. Louis Homicide Division at 314-444-5731. Or to remain anonymous, you can call Crime Stoppers 877-371-TIPS. T-I-P is in Paul S. So the next one comes from LiveScience or LiveScience.com, and the title reads, Maya Canoe Surrounded by Animal and Human Bones Found in, quote, Portal to the Underworld in Mexico. This one was sent to me by a listener, and I really appreciate it. I did kind of want to also do, like, weird things in the news, so this is going to be fun. And remember, I don't really read through these, so we're kind of experiencing this together. So a wooden canoe found in an underwater cave in Mexico was likely used as part of a Maya ritual. It goes on to say, A wooden canoe surrounded by human and animal skeletons near the ancient Maya city of Chichen Itza, I know I butchered that, I apologize, may have been used as part of a ritual. In 2021, divers in New Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula discovered the boat and bones deep inside an underwater cave located 15 feet or 4.6 meters below the water's surface. In total, archaeologists found 38 skeletal remains, including a human metatarsal, which is a foot bone, most likely from a woman, as well as bones from an armadillo, a dog, turkey, and eagle, according to a statement translated from Spanish. The abundance of armadillo bones and the presence of the human foot have led researchers to conclude that the canoe may have been used by the Maya during a ritual and was intentionally placed inside the cave. This idea is based on the fact that armadillos are adept swimmers capable of holding their breath underwater, using their claws to propel themselves forward. The researchers think that the armadillo remains could be an, quote, allusion to the entry of the armored animal into the underworld, end quote, according to a statement. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. The Maya believed that caves and cenotes, sinkholes, were portals into the underworld and used armadillos as an avatar for God L, a jaguar deity with a cape resembling the armored pattern of an armadillo's shell. I just find all that super fascinating. So, quote, there are known images of Mayan ceramics in which the armadillo appears as a stool of the gods, which characters that place their feet on it, end quote. Alexandra Bayar, an archaeologist from the French National Center of Scientific Research, said in a statement, 
Quote, this would be directly linked to the archaeological evidence observed in the sinkhole, with the armadillo serving as a manifestation of the deity. The canoe itself also provides archaeologists with further evidence that it was used as part of a sacred ceremony as it contained a, quote, very heavy prow, pro, and stern, I don't know much about boats, that would have been difficult to navigate in swift currents and was most likely never seaworthy. When the boat was first discovered during an excavation ahead of a railroad project, archaeologists tentatively dated it to be between A.D. 830 and 950. However, new carbon analysis shows that the wood of the vessel dates to the 16th century, according to the statement. And that's the end of the article. But, you know, I find that really fascinating. So our next article comes from IFL Science. And actually, even though this one was sent to me, um, I used to follow IFL Science, which is I fucking love science.com. And the title reads, Spiders the size of softballs lurk deep inside abandoned mines in Mexico's. Didn't know about mine spiders? Let's change that. This article was written by um, Rachel Funnel. So the article says, Mine spiders have seen a surge in popularity recently, as many are realizing for the first time that some of the planet's most impressive arachnids live their whole lives in dark and remote places. Side note, leave them be. Ugh. While there just isn't one genus of cave-dwelling arachnids, there's a host of impressive spiders to be found in caves and mines, and they surely only become more appealing when humans abandon them. Perhaps the most impressive mine spider is a species that was first identified in an abandoned mine in Baja California Sur, Mexico. In suitability spooky fashion, its existence was first hinted at by the discovery of a hollow husk. Quote, the first evidence we found of this species was a shed exoskeleton in the cracks of a rock overhang, said Jim Berrien, field entomologist at the San Diego Natural History Museum and one of the authors describing the new species in a statement. Quote, the exoskeleton was abnormally big, and I could tell by the eye pattern that it was in a group of spiders, wandering spiders from the family Tanidae, uh, with very few species in Baja California, sir, end quote. The behemoth of mine spiders wasn't just a new species, but also a new genus. It was named the Sierra Cactus. I know you're out there laughing at me. Wandering spider, and it is a relative of the notoriously venomous Brazilian wandering spider. Fortunately, it doesn't seem the Sierra version inherited the same toxicity. Quote, I got bit while handling a live specimen of this new species, and I'm still alive, he added. We haven't analyzed the toxicity of the venom, but most wandering spiders are not as dangerous as the Brazilian wandering spider, end quote. So then another title says, the mother of all mine spiders. So what it lacks in venom strength, it makes up for in size. With a spindly leg span around 10 centimeters or four inches across and a short, stocky 2.5 centimeter or one inch body. Its splayed size is about that of a softball. 
It's a body plan that makes web spinning pointless. Far better to scuttle along the walls of abandoned mines and hunch for your prey on foot. Their venom might not be strong enough to have taken out the scientist, but it would make short work of anything rat-sized or smaller. I'm kind of done talking about spiders, if I'm honest. <laughs> so our next article actually was sent to me by the illustrious creator of the Facebook Serial Killing a Podcast fan page. So I appreciate you sending this to me. And it comes from NBCLosAngeles.com, and the title reads, Ferris Bueller's Jeffrey Jones. So Jeffrey Jones was the principal on Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the kind of redheadish mustache. If you know, you know. So he pleads guilty in sex offender case. Jeffrey Jones, best known for playing the bumbling Principal Rooney in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, pleaded guilty in Los Angeles Tuesday to a felony charge of failing to update his sex offender registry info. The 64-year-old actor escaped a possible three-year jail sentence in state prison, but must now serve three years of probation and perform 250 hours of roadside cleanup, TMZ first reported. It's TMZ. Is this a reliable source anymore these days? It wasn't when they first came out. Let me know. So in July of 2003, Jones pleaded no contest to hiring a 14-year-old boy to pose for sexually explicit photos, according to City News Service. Quote, I'm sorry that this incident was allowed to occur. Such an event has never happened before. And they always say that. And it will never happen again, end quote, Jones reportedly said then. As a result of the case, he was sentenced to five years probation and was required to register annually as a sex offender. Jones was arrested June 23rd after failing to update his registration for 2009. He has appeared in more than 60 roles on the silver and small screens. Okay, and that's the end of the article. But oh, okay, so can I rant for a second? So didn't we just have the pedophile cannibal puppeteer Ronald William Brown who had a bunch of really disturbing child porn and he got a 20 or 30 year jail sentence and this dude is taking sexually explicit photos of a 14 year old little boy and all he got was five years probation and that he had to register as a sex offender every year. He hasn't he didn't update his registration. He hasn't updated it since 2009. This is 2013. What the fuck? So the next article was also sent to me by the creator of the fan page. Thank you again. And this one hits a little closer to home because it's out of Missouri, which is my state of residence, if you will. This one comes from truecrimedaily.com. And the title reads, Missouri Army Sergeant Accused of Killing Two-Year-Old Child at Wife's Illegal Daycare. <sighs> but the article comes out of Springfield, Missouri. A federal grand jury recently indicted a 40-year-old Army Staff Sergeant for allegedly killing a two-year-old child at his wife's illegal home daycare center on a military base in 2019. According to a news release from the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Western District of Missouri, the jury returned the indictment Tuesday, June 27th, charging Kevin Long with first-degree murder and making a false statement. 
The U.S. Attorney's Office alleges that on November 6, 2019, Long physically assaulted the victim and she died of blunt force injuries in the perpetration of child abuse. That's quote, end quote. Long and his wife were reportedly caring for the victim at his wife's illegal daycare center operated out of their home in Fort Leonard Wood, where Long was stationed. During an interview, Long allegedly knowingly made a false statement telling authorities he was, quote, unaware of Army regulations that restricted the operation of a daycare at Fort Leonard Wood. End quote. Long is set to appear in court for a detention hearing Thursday, July 6th, and remains held in federal custody. That is the end of the article, and I still have questions. So he's saying, oh, I didn't know that we aren't allowed to have a daycare out of our home when we're stationed on base or whatever. But he doesn't seem terribly concerned about the child that he killed. I don't know. That's bad. Moving on. Our next one comes from ctvnews.ca, coming out of Canada. The title reads, She was practically there waiting for us. Canadian cold case from 1975 finally cracked. So, an Ontario cold case from 1975 has finally been cracked thanks to the use of genetic genealogy or DNA testing designed to find genetic matches and help discover one's ancestry. On May 3, 1975, a local farmer discovered the remains of a woman floating in the Nation River near the Highway 417 Bridge, south of Castleman, Ontario. The unidentified woman was referred to as the Nation River Lady after the body of water she was found in. For years, attempts by authorities to identify her were unsuccessful and the case went cold. On Tuesday, the DNA Doe Project, or DDP, said the mystery had finally been solved and identified the woman as Lala Jewel Parchman Langford. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So the nonprofit organization, which aims to identify people in cold cases and return them to their families and communities, said it was approached by the Ontario Provincial Police, or OPP, in 2019 for help on the case. The DDP said it developed a DNA profile and uploaded it to two genetic genealogy databases, GED Match Pro and Family Tree DNA, in 2020. By researching matches from these websites and conducting an extensive search of available historical records, the organization said its team of volunteer investigative genetic genealogists were able to target Langford as a likely candidate within a few weeks. Quote, we were incredibly lucky with a couple of elements in this case. We had matches that are fairly closely related to our Nation River Lady, and once we got close, we uncovered newspaper articles specifically mentioning Jewel Langford's disappearance. She was practically there waiting for us to find her, the nonprofit stated in a news release. 
Quote, the heartbreaking part is that Jewel's mother clearly searched for her for years and unfortunately died not knowing what happened to her daughter. End quote. At the time, the OPP released a 3D clay facial reconstruction of the woman who was described as white, 25 to 50 years old, between 5 foot 2 and 5 foot 8, of average build and approximately 100 pounds with brown hair that was dyed a reddish blonde. And side note, that doesn't really help all that much. 25 to 50 years old is a pretty wide age spread. Five foot two to five foot eight is a big height difference in in the female world, if you will. But anyway, so when she was found, her body was wrapped with two pieces of green cloth and her hands and feet were bound with neckties. Additionally, a piece of cleaning cloth, a black cable and a curtain rod were found with the body. The OPP are set to hold a media briefing regarding the case on Wednesday. I guess this upcoming Wednesday. And I guess this week it's Mexico for the win because our next article comes from ABC7.com. And the title reads, Downey Man Arrested in Serial Killings of Sex Workers in Mexico. A country that I'm probably not going to visit. So coming out of Los Angeles. A downy man described as a suspected serial killer who targeted sex workers in Mexico has been arrested in Southern California, authorities say. Mexican authorities are working to extradite suspect Brian Rivera, 30, an American citizen who is believed to be responsible for the deaths of three sex workers in Tijuana. The women were found dead in hotel rooms in 2022. A preliminary hearing was held for Rivera on Thursday at a federal courthouse in Los Angeles. Another hearing is scheduled for July 10th. Mexican authorities have compared the murders to those by another notorious serial killer. Quote, This subject has criminal tendencies associated with violent and psychopathic behavior, Baja California Attorney General Ricardo Ivan Carpio Sanchez told reporters last year. Quote, his profile is very similar to someone who became very well-known decades ago, Ted Bundy, end quote. And that's the end of the article, but that seems a little sensational. Does that seem a little forced to try to get attention, that they just had to throw the Ted Bundy name in there? I don't know. Maybe that's just me. And the next one comes from abc30.com. Title reads, Missing 18-Year-Old Found Dead After Online Date, Say the Police. Two people have been arrested in connection with the murder of 18-year-old Jacob Williamson, a South Carolina native who went missing last week while on a date with someone he had met online. Williamson was reported missing by family on Sunday morning, according to the Union County Sheriff's Office in North Carolina, which had been conducting the search after receiving a tip Williamson was at a residence in Monroe, North Carolina. Williamson hadn't been seen or heard from since Friday evening, authorities said. Williamson had been talking to a man online for a month and was expecting to go on a date, meeting him in person for the first time, before Williamson went missing Friday, according to the sheriff's office. Joshua Newton allegedly went to the restaurant where Williamson worked in Lawrence, South Carolina, and drove them back to his place in Monroe more than two hours away according to the sheriff's office. 
The sheriff's office found a body believed to be Williamson on the side of the road a few miles away from Newton's house on Wednesday. Um, Newton and his live-in girlfriend, Victoria Smith, were both arrested. Police believe Newton killed Williamson at his home and Smith helped him hide the body, according to the sheriff's office. Newton, 25, has been charged with first-degree murder and obstruction of justice, while Smith, 22, has been charged with obstruction of justice and accessory after the fact. Quote, my thoughts and prayers go out to the family of the victim in this case as they begin to mourn this unimaginable loss. Over the past several days, the men and women of the Union County Sheriff's Office have fully dedicated themselves to this case and ensuring the people responsible for this tragic loss were brought to justice, Union County Sheriff Eddie Cathy said in a statement. The homicide investigation remains ongoing. And I think that that is all we are going to do today. I've got a couple of more, but I think I'm going to save them for next week because I think I want to kind of dig in and see a little bit more, see if I can find a little bit more information. So that's going to do it for this week, guys. Just remember, hang in there. We're all in this together. I mean, you know, it's Sunday evening for me when I'm recording this, and I have been dreading Monday morning, 6 a.m. my time, all day long. But it is what it is, right? We've got to do it. We've got to punch that clock and put our time in so that we can live our lives outside of that right so just know I'm with you I have this disdain and just ugh, I'm I'm ugh, right there with you guys but I also love you guys have a great week talk to you soon bye-bye